You know what time it is? It is time for the Mind of Sanity. As always, I'm your humble host, Richard the Awesome. And our guest tonight may be small in stature, but she is big in sass. We have Tinkerbell in the house. Tink, how is it going? Who are you calling small in stature, you dork? Um, I'm sorry? You should be. After I make this trip and everything for you, you start insulting me right off the bat? Fucking ass. I apologize. Whatever. Let's move on. You got it. So, you're one of the most famous creatures of the fae to ever exist. Can you tell me a little bit about how you became famous? Oh, honey. Fame just couldn't resist my sparkling charm and wit. You see, it all started when I fluttered my way into Neverland and met that mischievous rascal, Peter Pan. With my enchanting personality and a dash of fairy magic, I became an integral part of the adventures in this wondrous world. People couldn't help but fall under my spell. And soon enough, tales of the sassy Tinkerbell spread like wildfire. Let's face it, I can't blame them for being utterly captivated by this fabulous fairy. How exactly did you meet Peter? Ah, my dear, there's a reason why the, the specifics of how Peter and I met aren't mentioned in the book. Some things are simply meant to be shrouded in the magic of mystery and wonder. Our meeting was a special and enchanting moment reserved for the secrets of Neverland. What truly matters is that we gave cross paths in that fateful moment we would change both of our lives forever. Literally, in our case. We became the best of friends, embarking on countless adventures and creating memories that will last a lifetime. Or, should I say, a never-ending childhood. In the other realms, those of magic and dreams, meeting other creatures and people tend to be uneventful. But the friendship and camaraderie that blossoms from them are what truly shine in stories. Alright, that's... That's pretty fair. Uh, can you tell me more about him? About Peter? Let me tell you, that boy is a whirlwind of excitement and mischief. He's the very essence of eternal youth with a spirit that knows no bounds. Brave and daring, he fearlessly leaves the lost boys and their adventures across Neverland. To put it simply, he is adventurous and impulsive, always seeking thrilling escapades and magical encounters. He does have a lot of negative qualities, though, like... For example, he's a show-off. He can be a bit selfish and self-centered at times, forgetting his promises and often getting caught up in his own whims. He's not one to be tied down or grow up, cherishing the freedom of never having to face the responsibilities of adulthood. But beneath that mischievous exterior, Peter's heart is pure and full of magic. He's deeply loyal to his friends, especially to me, and I know he cares for them more than he lets on. And the adventures we've had together. With Peter around, life in Neverland is anything but dull, to say the least. I've heard of the books about your lives. Peter actually represents the selfishness of childhood. Is that true? <laughs> yes. In the whimsical realm of Neverland, Peter does symbolize the essence of childhood selfishness. He embodies the idea of eternal youth and the desire to escape the responsibilities and constraints of growing up. Peter's reluctance to embrace childhood and his commitment to never growing old showcases the allure of staying carefree and self-centered, just like a child. You see, in Neverland, children never grow up, and Peter personifies this eternal youthfulness. He delights in his freedom and the ability to focus solely on his own desires and pleasures. Many people see that aspect of his character as adventurous or maybe even charming. 
but it also highlights a certain natural selfishness and self-absorption often associated with childhood. That being said, he is more than just a representation of selfishness. Throughout the ages, we see glimpses of his vulnerability and the weight he carries as the leader of the Lost Boys. His friendships, particularly with Wendy, show that it's more to Peter than his carefree exterior. Ultimately, he serves as a captivating embodiment of the complex nature of childhood and the timeless yearning for never-ending play and adventure. That actually weirdly reminds me, where the, where the fuck do the Lost Boys come from? Well, due to the unique enchantment that prevents its inhabitants from growing old, it becomes a refuge for those lost and forgotten boys, giving them the gifts of eternal youth. Sounds like paradise. Heaven, even. However, the lost boys who, for various reasons, have wandered away, gotten lost, or were abandoned from their homes and families. But under Peter's guidance, the lost boys form a close-knit family, supporting and caring for each other like true brothers. So what are they like, exactly? Well, some of the more notable of them are quite the characters in their own right. Like Slightly, the most conceited little twerp I've ever met. He had this grand idea that he's got all these memories from before being lost in Neverland. But, let me tell you, it's all just a bunch of fairy dust in his head. Bless his little heart, but most of those so-called memories are nothing but silly misunderstandings. Get this. One time, he claimed he knew his last name because his pinafore had the words slightly soiled written on the tag. Can you believe it? That, that's amazing, if a little sad. Yeah, but there's also Curly. He's just the sweetest and most good-natured lad you'll ever meet. With his charming smile and endearing personality, he brought joy and cheer to the gang of lost boys. But don't let his gentle nature fool you. When it came to exploring the wonders of Neverland, Curly was right there with the rest of the crew, ready to discover all the magic and adventures there was to be found. Oh, and there's Nibs. He was a bundle of joy and positivity, always beaming with happiness and spreading his infectious laughter wherever he goes. Nibs is known for his happy thoughts, and his cheerful outlook on life brightens up even the gloomiest days in Neverland. And then there was also Toodles. He may seem a bit reserved at times, but don't underestimate him. He was a loyal and steadfast friend to all of us, and his dedication to the Lost Boys was unwavering. They all sound great, but what exactly happened to all of them? They do what all boys must do. They left Neverland, they grew up, they fell in love, had families, experienced life, and all the joy and pain that goes with it. When Wendy and her brothers decided to leave, it inspired the Lost Boys to also leave. They realized they'd become men someday and could not keep up with Peter forever. That must have been really hard. It was bittersweet, to be honest. Watching the Lost Boys leave Leverland and grow up was like catching a gust of wind in my wings, both exhilarating and heart-wrenching at the same time. Sure, saying goodbye wasn't easy. We had formed such a tight-knit family, and the thought of parting ways tugged at our fairy-sized hearts. But you know what? Deep down, I knew it was the mm -hmm. right thing to do. The call of adulthood and the allure of experiencing the wonders and challenges of life beyond Neverland can really be irresistible. <laughs> How did Peter handle it? He was pretty anti-growing up. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head. Peter was indeed pretty torn and struggled with the idea of the Lost Boys leaving Neverland. For him, he thought the idea of growing up and facing the responsibilities of adulthood is still something he wants to avoid at all costs. You see, he has this unwavering desire to stay young forever, cherishing the freedom and carefree nature only eternal childhood can provide. 
The idea of losing his playmates and facing the changes that come with growing up was downright scary for him. Still is, to be honest. Speaking of actually, like, the daring children, what were Wendy's and her brothers like? Oh, Wendy and her brothers were a delightful trio. Wendy, the eldest darling sibling, was a caring and nurturing young girl with a heart full of kindness and a vivid imagination. Wendy had this maternal instinct that extended not only to her own brothers, but also to the Lost Boys of Neverland. She took on the role of a loving mother figure, telling them stories, tending to their needs, and bringing them a sense of comfort. There was something about her. She brought a touch of warmth and compassion to everything she did, and her presence also added a sense of stability to an otherwise wild and unpredictable world. And there was also John, the middle brother, who was a bit more serious and kind of bookish. He loved adventure, just like Peter, and had a fascination with pirates and tales of bravery. Despite his more reserved nature, John's adventurous spirit really shined through when he was in Neverland. He embraced his thrilling escapades with excitement. Last, but certainly not least, we also had the adorable and innocent Michael. He brought a sense of childlike wonder and innocence to the group. Michael's imagination ran wild in Neverland. He was always ready to explore the magical realm with wide-eyed awe. Yeah, the mother thing is super weird. I won't lie, the idea that Wendy, who is like 12 to 13 years old, has to be a mother figure to other children is bizarre and a little disturbing. Oh, yeah, it's really weird. I've since stopped letting him try to find girls for that purpose. Margaret, Wendy's granddaughter, was actually the last. Let me tell ya, Peter may not be an adult, but he is the very definition of a man-child. Have you ever heard of Peter Pan syndrome? I don't think so. Well, listen up then. So, there's this pop psychology thing called Peter Pan Syndrome, and it's all about adults who act like they never want to grow up. Sound familiar? Just like our beloved Peter Pan, who's the poster boy for eternal youth and mischief. So, these individuals with Peter Pan Syndrome, usually guys, have a hard time taking on grown-up stuff. They shy away from responsibilities like paying bills, getting a job, or settling down in serious relationships. Instead, they prefer to frolic around like carefree adolescents chasing after immediate thrills and avoiding commitment. And oh, the nostalgia. They romanticize their own youth and wish they could just stay young forever, avoiding the whole adulting thing altogether. You might find them daydreaming about the good old days of childhood when life was all about fun and games. But here's the thing, sweeties. That's not how life works. You have to grow up. You have to shoulder responsibility. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie, that just sounds like a man-child. Is that a real disorder? Nah, Peter Pan Syndrome isn't a formal psychological disorder. It's more like a nickname for a certain set of behaviors. Just like how Peter himself is an typical grown-up guy. He's got his quirks and refuses to embrace the idea of growing old, but you're right, it is just a nicer way to say man-child. I know a few of them myself, I'm not gonna lie. Eek. But anyway, let's switch gears and talk about good old Captain Hook, Peter's nemesis. What was he like? Hook was a cunning and fearsome leader of the pirates aboard the Jolly Roger, his pretty big ship. <laughs> he is elegant and sophisticated, with a taste for the finer things in life. You can often see him dressed in his distinguished red coat and hat, complete with a long, curled mustache. Despite his villainous ways, Captain Hook had a certain charm and wit that captivates readers and audiences alike. He can be quite theatrical and dramatic, adding a touch of grandeur to his wicked schemes. His love-hate relationship with the bumbling Mr. Smee, his loyal first mate, adds an amusing dynamic to his character. Why did he hate Peter so much, though? Like, there's some real bad blood for a grown-ass man to be hunting down a child for so long. 
It reminds me of Bart Simpson in Sideshow Bob. It's fucking weird. You know, our parables are kind of interesting between the two. His hatred for Peter stems from a past encounter where Peter, in his playful nature, cut off Hook's hand and fed it to the crocodile that began hunting the captain. After that, Hook was consumed by a burning desire to seek vengeance on the boys forever eluded his grasp. Um... Fucking what? Why did Peter cut his hand off? Because I'm not gonna lie, I'll be pretty pissed too. Well, so Peter and Hook engaged in a fierce battle aboard the Jolly Roger. In the heat of the moment, Peter managed to gain the upper hand, pun intended, and in a daring act, he severed Captain Hook's hand with his trusty sword. The act of cutting off Hook's hand was not motivated by malice or a desire to cause harm per se, but rather it was a characteristic display of Peter Pan's mischievous and adventurous nature. For Peter, the act is a bold and playful response to Hook's villainy, and a way to assert his dominance on their ongoing rivalry. To be honest, Peter's carefree and nonchalant attitude towards the event was a defining trait of eternal usefulness. This fight really did showcase his impulsive nature and a sheer lack of understanding of the consequences. What made it much worse was the crocodile. How did the crocodile make it worse? He cut off the dude's hand. Well, following the incident, Hook became haunted by his lost hand, and the ticking clock inside the belly of the crocodile, which had swallowed it, became a constant reminder of his past encounter with Peter Pan. So, what happened to Hook? After what had been a centuries-long feud, Hook and Peter engaged in one final battle um, aboard the Jolly Roger. In the midst of their confrontation, Hook's old nemesis, the crocodile, made his presence known. The ticking clock inside his belly always announced its approach. In the final moments of their duel, Hook lost his bounce and fell overboard into the waiting jaws of the crocodile, meeting a pretty tragic end. The crocodile finally got its long-awaited meal, and with Hook out of the picture, it seemed like the ticking clock of the crocodile was no longer a haunting presence in Neverland. Peter Pan emerged victorious from the battle, and Neverland returned to its usual state of whimsical adventure and enchantment. I'm not gonna lie, that still sounds a bit like a shit show for Captain Hook, who got his hand cut off for no good fucking reason. But anyway, moving on, I guess. Uh, how did J.M. Barry actually discover Neverland? Like, I don't see anyone from Neverland looking for an author to tell their stories, you know what I mean? Oh, no, 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 no. Barry actually discovered us due to the influence of the Llewellyn Davies family. You see, Barry befriended the Llewellyn Davies family, particularly the five young boys. George, John, Peter, Michael, and Nicholas. He developed a close relationship with them and became their guardian after the current's death. One day, one of them told of an adventure they had in Neverland. At first, he didn't believe it, but when he asked the other boys, they collaborated on the story. He was truly captivated by the idea of uh, preserving the essence of childhood innocence and imagination. He believed that children possessed a unique perspective of the world, free from the constraints and worries of adulthood. I'm still not sure how he found this, to be honest. Do you have any guesses or theories? The death of Barry's young brother, David, at a young age deeply affected him. Uh, David's memory played a significant role throughout his life. What Peter symbolizes so well as a boy who never grows up can also be seen as a reflection of desire to keep the memory of loved ones alive. I believe it was this love of his brother David that allowed him to make his trip to Neverland. Barry was known for his love of fantasy and escapism. He wanted to tell a story that would transport readers and audiences to a world of magic and adventure, far away from the troubles of everyday life. Neverland, with its pirates, fairies, and 
fantastical creatures embodies this desire for a wondrous and exciting escape. That, or he convinced Baphomet to help him. I, I, I don't know how to process that last statement. Uh, but I've been meaning to ask you, how do you feel about your portrayal by Disney? Yuck. Oh, that high of opinion, uh-huh. Look, don't get me wrong. I enjoy a good Disney movie like anyone else. They're fun, and Walt had a great dream. To make films like we watched by a whole family with a childlike wonder? I'm all for it. So, why the yuck? Because they lost that childhood wonder. I find it quite interesting that a company that is built on books and stories that we would consider the public domain refuses to allow their own creations to enter the public domain. They traded their childlike wonder for a capitalist greed machine. It is pathetic, and if Walt could see them now, he'd be disgusted. So, you don't like your betrayal? The 1953 movie is fine, but the nonsense of using my name for their silly cash grabs pisses me off. I'm a fairy, not a fucking cash cow. Damn, harsh words. Not harsh, it's the truth. Walt Disney had a profound love for storytelling and believed in the power of narrative to connect with people on an emotional level. He saw animation as a medium through which he could bring beloved stories and characters to life. Above all, Walt had a dream of creating a place where families could come together, forget their worries, and experience of happiness and joy. This dream led to the creation of Disneyland, the first ever theme park in 1955. But that magic that Walt created, it's gone now. It's just replaced by greed. You seem really upset about this. Of course. The question isn't why am I upset, the question is why aren't you upset? Works that are in the public domain are freely accessible to everyone. People from all walks of life can access and use public domain works for learning, research, and creativity. This provides a vast pool of creative and intellectual resources for artists, writers, filmmakers, and other creators. Artists can draw inspiration from and build upon public domain works, fostering a culture of creativity and innovation. Your passion for this is pretty expiring, but can you tell the audience what exactly is the public domain? I'd love to. The public domain refers to a body of creative works, intellectual property, and knowledge that is not protected by copyright law or other intellectual property rights. Works in the public domain are no longer subject to exclusive legal contract by their creators, copyright holders, or even their heirs. This means they are freely available for anyone to use, share, adapt, and build upon without the need for permission or payment. But that's what makes this important. As copyrights eventually expire and works enter the public domain, they become part of the collective cultural heritage of humanity. These shared cultural knowledges enrich society and contribute to a deeper understanding of our history. The public domain includes historical and culturally significant works that are no longer under copyright protection. Preserving and freely sharing these works ensures that our history and cultural heritage is not lost. Preserving it is vital so it can be appreciated, studied, and most importantly used and enjoyed by future generations. Can we have some examples of public domain works? Sure. For one, Peter Pan. But there is also Dracula, King Arthur, Beauty and the Beast, Sleeping Beauty, Strange Case of Dr. Dracula and Mr. Hyde, Alice in Wonderland, uh, The Wizard of Oz, The Works of Shakespeare, Sherlock Holmes, The Gentleman Thief R.C. Lupin, Little Mermaid, Snow White and the Seven Doors, Cinderella, Do You Need Me to Go On, 
many of which Disney did profit off of. The public domain is what Disney builds its foundation on. I'm not gonna lie, there seems to be a lot of anger and hate towards Disney about this. They're half right. There is a lot of anger, but not hate. Truth be told, I do love Disney. I spend a lot of time with children who find themselves in Neverland. Disney is important to them. Not just as a form of entertainment, but also to help them cope with their lives. To help them see that they can be heroes. There is a great quote by a man named G.K. Chesterton that goes something like this. Fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that the dragons can be killed. It has an incredibly important lesson for many children. Disney should be at the forefront of public domains, so their stories can be loved and shared and built upon by the very children growing up watching them. They should be at the forefront of representing people of color in their stories. They should be at the forefront of representing LGBTQIA people in their stories. An easy way to do that? The public domain. So you're right that the fact that they have filed lawsuits to prevent things from hitting the public domain fills me with anger. But it isn't hate that fuels my anger. It is love. Love for a company has affected so many lives and is refusing to play by the same rules that give them that ability. You know what? That that sounds fair. I, I, I see where you're coming from. I think that's all the time we have, though. Tink, is there anything else you'd like to say? Yeah. Remember that everyone's journey is unique. Some folks might have a bit of Peter Pan in them, but it doesn't mean that they're stuck in Neverland forever. Life's a wild adventure, and we all have to take our own path through it. And you know what? That's okay, because who says we can't have a little fairy dust of youthfulness in our lives, even as we grow up? Have a wonderful evening, friends. All right, guys, as always, it has been a pleasure. Oh, and remember, it is a second star to the right and straight on till morning. I I have no idea what that means. Typical adult. Uh, all right. Anyway, guys, smash that follow button and tell all your friends. Leave a review, all that fun stuff. Fen Fen! <coughs> a little early, dude. A little early. Fen Fen, sign us off. Good boy.